My goal was to have the best architecture school in the country, if that was a possibility. You know, in other words, how do you get there? And the other was, can you program it in a way that is better than the conventional way? Welcome to Archonnect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia Taylor Hochberg, and this week we have a very special interview with architect Ray Cappy, founder of SciArc and Southern California Modern Master. At 88 years old and with over 60 years of practice, Cappy is still working. He began his career building post and beams during California's post war building boom, and in 1968 founded Cal Poly Pomona's architecture department. Shortly after, he left to establish SciArc, known then as the New School. Cappy invited us to do the interview in his home in Pacific Palisades, which he designed and built in the 1960s, and has since become one of his best-known works. With such an extensive career to cover, our interview takes a wide angle on Cappy's approach to architectural education and his thoughts on how architects relate to historical eras of art and science. So, Ray Cappy, thank you so much for coming and talking, or rather, I should say, thank you so much for inviting us into your home in Rusty Canyon to do this interview. Well, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, so this is the real limitation of the podcast medium is that no one gets to really feel the interview as we are feeling it, getting to be in the space. But I wanted to kind of start the conversation around this house. Formally began in 1965 and finished in 67? Correct. And at that time, what was the neighborhood of this uh, Rustic Canyon and Pacific Palisades like? Well, the, the, this was a very, to me, a very special neighborhood in, in the city. Having gone to Berkeley in uh, Northern California, it also reminded me a little more of that because of the narrow streets and the way you kind of come up into it. And the the area at that time was one in which there were a lot of there were many smaller houses through the canyon. Land at that time was probably selling for three four thousand dollars a site, and. I did a house in 1957 or 8, I think, here. That was the first time I was in the canyon that way. You know, I had, <clears throat> I was aware of the canyon just because I went to university high school, so there were some affairs sometimes at the, at this, uh, at a park, at the community building. So anyway, when after doing that house, and I had, we were living in, in uh, San Fernando Valley and and so I, I was, I, I liked the area a lot, and so therefore I started to look to see when lots would become available. Part of the problem of this lot, of course, was that it has springs, a lot of water. I was aware of that, and you couldn't at that time. There weren't sewers in the area, so it was septic tanks and cesspools and stuff. And this lot was not one that was very conducive to even that kind of a use because of the amount of water that would flow. And you either had to have a big tank out in front or nothing. But at the time I bought it, in I think 62 or 63, uh, they, the land, it already said that there would be sewers. So I knew, you know, if I waited a little bit, I could probably just about time the house to finish when the sewers were going in and everything would work out fine. So that's, that's the way it was. And, and uh, as I said, most of the houses were smaller. <clears throat> in a way, I overbuilt the area at that time. But we were coming out of a house of around 2,000 square feet. And uh, I felt I could, we wanted certain spaces. I wanted my studio here or a place for uh, the kids to do their artwork. And so I went, so I built a little larger at that time than most of the houses around. And also I was on a kind of an odd site, which ended up being very good in a sense, in that it came from a high, the highest part of the site where most people were building up on the upper portion to a lower portion. So I was sort of a transition lot between those two. Anyway, that's answering beyond probably what you want. But I just, you know, it was, it was, um, it was a, a, a great area. 
the banks didn't think so, but, <laughs> but I certainly thought so. They said you're trying to build a house on groundwater that's flowing out, and you, they, they weren't ready to uh, invest well, in such a like, thing. They don't even like the area, which was mm. even more crazy, you know. But because it became a very prime area later on, which was good for me because at that time we could build for a lot less cost than you do today by far. Absolutely. And so the value increases are maybe 50 times what they were when I was there. And you mentioned before wanting to build the house to accommodate not only just the living situation, but your own children's creative efforts and your own studio. Mm-hmm. Did that change your approach in from the beginning to designing the house, knowing that you wanted to be able to work there? And maybe how did that change the design? Well, that didn't change the design too much. I it, it, it changed the what I was thinking about in the future more than anything. So the children's rooms were designed in a way that when they were when they moved out, and if I wanted to move my office here totally, I could use that whole area plus the downstairs studio plus this. So it was sort of like taking this section that's kind of hard to but the southerly section the children's extension and making that primarily office all the way and then the rest of the house which would just be you know our bedroom living room and kitchen would would be a good size for for us initially of course i only used the studio for a few months probably about six months because I was forming a partnership at that time. And we were, oh, we got a bird. We were waiting for... for uh, A bird in the window, you think? Or? We just came in the house. Ah, oh, wow. So, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> Wants that, to listen to the interview. Yeah, well, that kind of takes me... Version. That takes me back to the very when I was building here. We used to have a lot of blue jays. And <laughs> when the house was almost finished... Two blue jays walked into the house, <laughs> kind of walked around exploring it, and uh, when they were through, they flew out. Uh, very smart birds. Most birds come in, and they keep wanting to crash into the windows. <laughs> they were taking a tour. They right. were, they they were, were invested. They, they were really, yeah, they were taking a good tour until the crows kind of scr- moved them out of the neighborhood. <laughs> but I liked the blue jays. They were, they were pretty bright. But uh, anyway, where were we? <laughs> so anyway, that so that was you know the the, the goal was to someday have an, my office in here at a later date, and for a while I did have that. I had four or five people working here, and but I never really decided. I decided I didn't really want to have a real big office and at that time and so I just decided I wouldn't do that anymore and I just left everything as it was and our grandkids grew up here and our and we use it for guests and everything else so the in the, the, the space part of the space changed to a little office during the time that I was had more people here so to move back a little bit in time you mentioned Berkeley attending school at UC Berkeley and I'm wondering specifically about a um not just your experience of architecture at that time in the 1950s, but specifically there's this statistic that I believe is quoted on Cappy Architect's website that says you built 50 post and beam houses in the first 10 years of practice. That's correct. And that's pretty, like by today's standards, you imagine the architect fresh out of school never even coming close to touching that many. No, well, that was was because it was post-World War II. Exactly. So I'm wondering... In your education, what did you perceive as the core objectives to the architecture education at that time and allowing you to get to that point of practice? Well, Berkeley at that time is, you know, after World War II, uh, it had been changing from a Beaux-Arts school that was prior to World War II to a more modern, you know, school. And at the beginning, when I was there and starting from 1947, they didn't have too many of the sort of primo architects that existed in the Bay Area. There were some very good ones in San Francisco. But most of them did not teach at at, at Berkeley at that time. And I was probably two years into the program, before maybe three, I think two, when Worcester came from the East Coast. And he had been, of course, he was an important San Francisco architect. And he became the dean. And then gradually... They, they began to bring other architects in. So 
the beginning of the education was, I don't, I, you know, it was just kind of normal stuff, and it was okay. It was, it was sort of gra more graphic at the beginning. A lot of things I, I didn't really love, but I did okay with. And uh, then gradually, we had a lot of projects. We would do projects every five weeks. So compared to today, where normally there are at least 10 to 15 weeks, depending upon the studio. And so it, it, there was a different pace to the whole thing. I mean, you, you, you designed a lot, of, a lot of work just kind of off the top. Maybe we were using some, you know, magazine influences like they still do and, and uh, other influences that were around. Uh, I was certainly aware of Neutra down here and Schindler and, and, and Harwell Harris, too, and some of the other people working out of Southern California as well as the Northern California architects. So you, you, the learning was almost a self-learning process. Uh, we did not have to go to class in studio if we didn't want to. Uh, if you wanted crits, you could go. If you didn't want crits, you just didn't have to go. So as I've explained to other people before, my fourth year... Well, I had been in the Army, and I had also gone to UCLA a semester, so I had quite a few units going in. And uh, my last semester, my last year, I only had design left to take. And I've talked many times that I worked 40 hours a week <laughs> and just do my projects on when they were due. And I'd usually go for one crit, and that would be about it. So was there much of a student community around... Architecture? There was. I I was not as much a participant as many others were. I, I I'm more of a loner, I guess, when I work. I like to work alone. I don't like a lot of people talking to me. I'm not a synergistic architect. Some people are, and they work very well with talk first. You know, a lot of discussion back and forth and all that. I I don't really ever. I've never worked that way, and I don't enjoy working that way. I think it's a, a very viable way of working, but that just doesn't happen to be me. So I wasn't really around the community of my, even my own class that much. I was to a degree, but not not like some of the some of the students always worked together. And of course, the ones that worked together, their projects were more similar. Therefore, they would fall into sort of one category in the jury system. And those of us who worked really more alone. Uh, you'd either be high or low com compared to that group, but usually high. I don't know if you know the name, but one of my classmates was Jerry McHugh, who later became dean at uh, Harvard. And he also was one person who worked a lot in the, in the field, but at the same time, usually worked alone. He didn't, uh, he wasn't part of the group either. So yeah, we, were, we were that, more that kind of people, I guess. I don't know. So that, that was all I can really tell you about it. And I liked the education in retrospect particularly because I felt it gave you a chance to realize who you were and what you can do and what you can't do. And when you stuck up for your own you know, projects and thought they were okay and you came out okay, it, it's sort of a reaffirmation of how you think about yourself. And so I was kind of, I was that way. And then I was always a person in a little bit of a hurry <laughs> uh, because I knew after World War II that there was going to be, there was a lot, fair amount of work. And I felt the sooner I, I got moving in, the better I, off I would be. And when you talk about the number of projects, you know, it was it was time when, you know, half a dozen projects a year was not, not unusual. And uh, I not only designed, but I also built in those days. I was more of a design builder. And so, uh, and I had and I had clients, you know, just coming in. I didn't, you didn't have to market. You didn't have to do anything. Yeah, it sounds like a very far less political and kind of public image interested approach to architecture school, where so much of the importance is of attending those crits to, you know, talk to the visiting professors and present yourself in a certain way. Yes, well, people had more, I mean, today there's much more, 
or for many years, it's been a lot more talking along the way, and, and a lot of professors uh, really want to sequester their students and really want to, you know, I guess, give them what they do and what they're about. Uh, I, I didn't teach that way either, but my I was more interested in the student evolving. But today, they, they go for the crits because the, there, there isn't a jury like we had it at uh, Berkeley where there were four people, your instructor was only one. And so therefore you weren't you weren't worried whether they're going to give you a, a bad grade because you weren't a nice student coming in all the time listening to them and doing what they want you to do. So that was an advantage. I, I you know I probably did better that way, although I probably if I was forced to be there, I would have been there, you know. But but, but uh and in, in, as I said before, it really, I think, was a, a good system. And then we also did sketch problems that in, at Berkeley, we were, they would give a project every Friday night and you had to turn it in Saturday. So you learned to work more quickly and with, with less rhetoric and less <laughs> uh, thinking about it and going through it. I mean, I, I, I always felt we didn't... We, we had a, you know, we would draw and have a full presentation. But I never thought it was, I always felt it could be thought about even further and could be more complete if you had a, a longer period of time. And when I became involved in education, I was very comfortable with the fact that we would have 10 and 15 week projects instead. But there was also, uh, if, you, if I may go on with that a little bit, sure. was that... Uh, what disappointed me was when you did do that, the students, instead of evolving better, would quite often, if you, you know, they'd, they'd keep going backwards with their project instead of sort of in a lineal fashion moving forward. So when you ask them to do certain things on the project, they would usually drop the project's do something else. So by the time you were through with 15 weeks, they might just as well have been three weeks because they half the time were changing the projects right down to the end because of their lack of confidence in what they were doing, which I always, I, I tried as an instructor. I mean, I said to them, if you can design the project, you know, what I give you, and you can do it in two weeks, and you're satisfied with what you have, you can go to the beach, as far as I'm concerned, for the rest of the semester till you turn it in. Nobody ever took me up on that in all the time I was teaching, 20-some years. Well, so when you went to Cal Poly Pomona then and started the architecture department there, how did those ideas come into the program? Or well, did they? Uh, yes. Well, they didn't know. What happened... <laughs> By that New time, slate. well, no, it was many. You know, I didn't get it. I didn't start in education until I was fifteen years in practice, really. So I would, I thought of myself more as a practitioner, not a, necessarily an academic or a great educator. But I was interested in education, and I, uh, and when I finished this house, and that was, you know. 15 years into my practice, practically. So I felt I had something finally to say in, in, in my mind. I felt that I had put together a good combination of a rational process along with an intuitive process that seemed to be a good balance. And when I, when I was teaching, substitute teaching at USC, a couple of times, they were going through that transition, too, prior to that time, SC was taught primarily by practitioners in the city. And they were really uh, doing that just because they loved to teach. They weren't getting paid very much. But uh, when Galleon set up his program, that's sort of the way it was. And those students were taught in a way that they were pretty much doing about the same thing we were doing in practice. So when they came out of SC during those early years from, I'd say, uh, 
probably 1945 to probably 1962-63, they would come out really well prepared and with the same kind of almost aesthetic and and attitude towards lifestyle and living and inter- interaction between the inside and the outside and I mean it was it was all very similar to the practice so they would come out and you knew what they knew and where they would go when I, when SC was how uh, started and Sam Hurst came from the East Coast he came at that time there was much more of a discussion of rational thinking and decision-making that would have less of the intuitive, probably, and much more of the other. And that was interesting to me because even though I had always worked with construction systems and cared about those things, the idea of, of that was appealing to me and that you could now think in a way that might be a little more lineal and, and in a way that could progress in a better way in, in architecture. So that, that, was, that was really... So when I went to Cal Poly, my program was, was sort of a combination. I, first, we tried very hard to see how far I could go with the rational process. And Christopher Alexander, who was up at Berkeley at that time, was into this idea that, because computers were now available, that you could put down enough of the programmatic issues and use the computer to sort those out in a way that, that would give you an answer. And so I, would, I tried that with my students, and a couple students could almost do it that way, not through the computer, but through their own ability to think because the computer was not, it was very slow in those days. It was punch cards, and you could take forever if you're going to do anything with it. And so, but they, but they could think that way, and so I was encouraging that. But majority of students probably couldn't to, to any great degree. Uh, so we tried that for a while and tried to see how that would be. I did a lot more experimentation because uh, I was interested in what Archigram was doing uh, internationally, and here they were here, and I hired some of the guys from there. And we we did inflatables, and we did uh, other projects, dodecahedrons, and all kinds of stuff that was going that I was trying in the first couple of years, and uh, but but along with that, I also had some other thoughts because I was always in, I was also always interested in uh, in urban issues, and since it was planning and landscape there as well, we I was hoping that the next generation of architects would be much more involved than they had been because we were one of the few firms. That really was smaller firms, at least that was were doing this kind of work in the city of L.A. And uh, the, you know, a few of the big firms were too. But we, so we were rather unique. And I thought, well, why aren't more students caring about those issues as well, and particularly in a environmental design program? So I was trying to. So I, there was an offering in both architecture and urban design. Uh, there was an offering in, in uh, management. There was an offering in, in construction uh, management as well. There was another course that they could take that would be involved with, uh, uh, like, what was the other, well, even marketing, because I was using the rest of the university that way. Uh, for them, and if their design, if they were not as strong in design, they could kind of push their major more to those areas. Because when you go out into the field later, few people are on design staffs, and the majority of the people are doing (laughs) these other tasks. So I always felt that why why shouldn't it start in the university as well? So there were these combinations of things that I was testing at Cal Poly. And uh, it, the program was going very well. You know, we were, I was just there three and a half years, but 
we had grown a lot too much, really. And but at the same time, I felt that the program was successful. The professional thought it was successful, and uh, so when we had when we later split, it was it was over, uh, you know, silly things. But anyway, that was they 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 didn't. My wish, as I have explained to many times, is that that. The other two programs couldn't grow much more than 200 students, and I, I thought architecture should also cap out at 200. So it'd be a you know a school of uh, 600 students, which is plenty for normal college. But the, the the administration liked the idea that there were so many architectural students who wanted to come into the program, so they, uh, as a result, would use that. That would be an economic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, thing. So, therefore, Syark. I mean, uh, we can get into the Syark story, but I want to yeah, ask you first. I wanted. I didn't mean to say Syark. Oh. I, I wanted to say <laughs> so, Freudian slip. No, no. I was. I was just. Was I going to say? I, well, it, it just. It, After the it, tuition and yeah, wanting to. Well, too much tuition. Too much worrying about that part, and of course, we would get our funds later, and you change the power of the whole thing, and then you don't have that equality of, of the three disciplines at all. And so there, there were a lot of things that didn't work in that system, but generally our program was okay. It was growing well. And the, the rationalism that you mentioned before that process or that method, do you feel that's a scientific process? necessarily or specific to a design process yeah it it's really specific to that in a sense except that the the idea my idea about science was a little bit more that science usually does not circle back on itself so much it tends to grow in a, a what i would say a lineal way you know you standing get, on you, the shoulders you, of giants yeah, kind of thing you keep, <laughs> keep on moving Architecture was not doing that, and, I, and my feeling was that it should be thinking more the way science thinks, in which you evolve to a point where it's you feel positive about it, and then you, you're moving on to another exploration and another exploration, and you're moving it in a way that, that's what I would call more rational, maybe more scientific in its thinking, and if you wanted to use present-day technology, obviously that's an advancement. That's where you, we, we should be moving. And uh, at that time, it wasn't doing that that much. Today it, today it does a lot more. I mean, you know, I think the computer does that, the ability of the industries to really do what architects are doing and, and promote it and to the point where a lot of things that used to be so personal and so sp special become matter of fact so that that is so that is occurring in a sense today and when you started sciarc at least one of the origin stories that has floated around is that science architecture was one of the initial origin names for right for sciarc it could also be southern california institute of course it's a convenient overlap but um yeah. would you say then that one of the initial founding ideas behind sciarc was to make architecture more scientific in the way you just described yes I and mean, that's Way, way I was thinking about it. That would be my vision of what the school should be. And it should be people who are not necessarily of the same thinking, but people who have diverse thoughts, but talented people who could, you know, move the school, create dialogue, and see where it would go, how it would, how it would evolve. I mean, I had my ideas, other people had their ideas. But, but being the one who gets to put the program together and essentially, and the, the, the staff, you have an advantage of trying to, to get the people who you think fit into your vision. And I, that, that's the way, kind of the way I manage the school. And at that initial point of beginning SciArc, of course, there are many other fields that were going through incredible advancements and exploration just in, in general in science and technology, and obviously a huge shift in the culture because of that. Did you feel that architecture was a part of that, necessarily? Well, architecture was a part of it in a, <laughs> uh, in kind of a different way. I mean, you know, it, it, if you look at what became the isms, as far as the art and literature 
so, uh, architecture was always third in that mentality. If we were talking about postmodernism, postmodernism was in the other fields before architecture decided they should have postmodernism, and uh, which was kind of nuts because, in my <laughs> my opinion, you, you you don't have post and beginning and in and out. And I mean, for for us, for those of us who are modern architects, we we just think of it as architecture. Period. You know, and you that's the way you design. You design to the programs. That's the rationalism. What you're going to do, and and you answer the you know those questions and you move on if you are based if your thinking is based more on some of the other ideas that's okay too if you, if, if art is important to you as as a direction or a conceptual manifestation okay fine if it's exploring materials that's important to you well then that's another way to go so you know when when Again, when postmodernism started, then I, I wanted to do a futures institute so that at the school because I, I wasn't interested in that. And, you know, most of our faculty weren't either. Some were, some, some weren't interested in, in postmodernism. So that whole thing kind of messed everything up as far as I was concerned for quite a few years, almost, almost 15 years of sort of setting things backwards. Because it didn't really accomplish what it should have accomplished. I mean, there was nothing wrong with the idea that modern architecture had not created the best cities in the world, mainly because they had to grow too fast. I mean, it was sort of obvious that most cities, <laughs> great cities, took centuries to build. You know, they we had to do it. They were, you know, in our case, it was like five, ten years. Well, it didn't work too bad. It was like new towns in England, you know, one that didn't work, throw that one out. Let's do another one, you know. I mean, you don't even give it a chance. It doesn't have, it has to have evolution over time. So, of course, modern architecture couldn't solve all those problems. And, you know, some of the ideas were great. The concepts might be great. But when you have a lot of practitioners, they're not all great. So you're going to have a mixture of stuff that isn't going to be what you, you know, might think it should be. So all I'm saying is that, you know, over, over, yeah, it needs, it needs time. It needs all, all of this. And, and architecture, I think, does, I'm not sure. Today, I think it, it, it probably evolves in, in maybe a better way. I mean, the communication is something so much more than it ever was in the you know in the early earlier days just between, in my time between client and architect well, or only, just no no just in general creative. I mean so much so much material when I started Cal Poly our library was probably not as big as I even have in terms of architectural publications there were there were not uh, I mean there were the old books but I'm talking you know in terms of modern architecture it was not a very large amount of written material. Today, the written material is, doesn't stop, you know. And uh, there are zillions of books coming out all the time. But and so, and, but they, oh, that's one part of it. And then the other part is uh, there's much more in, the, in the, the paper about architecture now than there used to be in, in the general section. We used to have a home section, which was a good communicator at that time for locals. And we were all local workers anyway. So that worked okay. But the bigger global communication and everything that's out there and what people can pick up from the computer and you'd like that, you know, and they can Google anything, it, it makes a big difference in, in how, how a, a field can evolve and, and how any profession can evolve. And so there's a lot of that. There's connectivity at the same time as there's just uh, just a whole whole different growth process. And the computer has changed the whole method of working anyway, and uh, it's completely a different world of architecture than, than I started in, for sure. And that's not that many years, but it's still in 66 years now, something like that. But I mean, it's it's that kind of thing, you know, that, that I think takes place. But I, I wouldn't say architecture ever really led, usually it was, I would think, 
a little more of a following follower because your clients lead in a, in a sense, right? I mean, you have your developers who lead, you have your cities who have people who are telling you what you can do and you can't do. You have all of this going on and and you have to to work with all that. So it's you're you're usually working if you're in the real world, not just the the sort of academic world, <laughs> you're really working with constraints, many, many constraints. And you have to be able to sort those out in order to be at all successful. And if you can't satisfy your client, you don't have a project. And so that, to me, that's the program is important, the people are important, they're very important. And um, my goal is to make them happy. Not, not I like to be happy that the project turned out well, but I'm I'm not going to live there, you know. <laughs> well, it's certainly a long game, yeah. and it it strikes me as something that at SciArc the kind of initial rebellious attitude that kind of gets attached to the school, I think righteously so, at the beginning might have been in some parts protesting against that lack of architecture to lead in that regard and that the research that SciArc wanted to do at the beginning or the kind of questions that they wanted to be engaged in were part of trying to push architecture into a more leading in the ideas zeitgeist or so. But I, um, oh, I, sorry, I, I, I would agree with that. Okay. that. That was My goal was to have the best architecture school in the country. Simple. Simple. If that was a possibility. You know, in other words, how do you get there? And the other was, is there, a, can you program it in a way that is more, is better than the conventional way? Well, the, the advantage that SIRC always had is that we can, we can move fast. Didn't have to go through the university process. I mean, you go through that and you can go nuts. So you get, you know, it takes several years to get anything even going and to get a decision from somebody without whole thing. I mean, all they had in my case, somebody had to come and, could I try this? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, my, my attitude was, you know, running up the flagpole. If it flies, great. If it doesn't, so what? We go <laughs> try something else. So my, my, my answer at that time, I was very much, yes, go ahead. Yes. I didn't stop anybody from trying things. That's the only way you can advance. But we could do it we were just quicker on our feet, that's all, because we could, you know, you make your decision, go, go. And that's still the case. I mean, that's what makes it vital. And it can change, and it's open. And the students feel good about what they're doing. They feel energized all the time. It changed, it changed a lot in education, I think, because everybody was looking at SARC. You know, here we are, school, we started with zero dollars. And we were able to do stuff that other schools weren't even doing, just from from uh, working off from tuition. And in the context of architecture education today, we have dealt with not only that frustration from students and faculty and really everyone within a university system that has to go through these, you know, Byzantine kind of levels of bureaucracy or such, but also that there are new schools that are trying to, not in the same way that SciArc did, but try a new alternative to that kind of education where they're yeah. working more with practices and directly putting students in more of an apprenticeship role to, to learn. Well, some schools did that early on, too. Mm -hmm. There were schools in the country, I think, uh, you know, where, well, of course, Boston Architectural Center was sort of that kind of a school back east. Then there was, trying to think who it was, the Midwest. They would always, students would, would take, I think, even a year off apprenticing and so forth. And they were really very much into, the, into that. The hard part about that always was to, you know, when you're in that much of a real world. And it's good if you take off like that because you can't, when you do pro professional practice in school and you try to teach what you do in the profession, uh, you know, construction documents and things of that sort, you can't get enough hours. It's hard to get the hours. I mean, in one month out of school, you know, you got uh, 160 hours, and, and to get 160 hours in a school program is, is, is really tough. 
unless the students are working only, I mean, oh, that's all they were doing is pro practice. <laughs> and during the year, they wouldn't, have Not enough, they, they wouldn't have enough time. So most schools and almost the majority of thinking, and there's been this, this argument has gone on forever, and it keeps being repeated. But my feeling is that the profession has to take, you know, that, that in, as, as a goal of their own uh, education system to bring stu- young people into the profession who have gone through a, you know, a decent curriculum and have them learn their, their, their professional stuff there. It took me one month, that's all, of working in the outside world to, to really understand that whole thing. And so I, I didn't see, you know, and, and yet it, it was nice, as I said before, when SC had students ready to go practically, uh, that made it a lot easier. Cause, but they, they had a, a the, the system was fairly prescribed in a sense. Everybody was doing post and beam houses, everything. You know, there was the case study years, the arts and architecture. There was a lot of influence of that type. And it was rather straightforward and, and rather simple in a way. And so that was much easier. Today it's very complex. And uh, people, you know, the theses are always very esoteric and, and all over the place. And you can do it from sewing to God knows what. And, it's you know, so it's a whole it's a whole different world and and the the products are more are almost artful in a sense to the degree that you you you'd have to invent materials to make them work with the what the knowledge of the, that the student has not that they can't be structured properly and built properly but they don't they don't think like that because they start with form and then you know, you're, and and that isn't the way architects like myself work. I start the opposite way. So so it's a it's a you know the structure is important to me. The environmental control systems are important to me. The programmatic issues, of course, are the progression of space is important. The 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 whole the whole ball of wax is what you're trying to get together in in one time. Well, the student today doesn't want to think that far into the process, and that's. That, that's all. But 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 yet there are things that are happening that are that are quite wonderful in terms of how it advances. It can advance the profession when you have people who already have experience, and then you have young people coming in who can kind of push the edge a bit in the office. And I think in the bigger offices that probably is is very very important. And the work is has gotten much better. I mean, public work today is, I think, quite good. It used to be horrible. You know, that was, those were not, those, were, those weren't primo jobs to get. Most of it was almost difficult to do, you know. But today, uh, I, I find very good buildings. I was on the design review board at uh, UC San Diego, and, and I, the, the, the work got better and better, and, and the, the products were, that that were produced were better and better. They weren't avant-garde, they weren't way out, but they were very excellent in terms of professional, in my opinion, anyway. Other people wouldn't agree, but they were very professionally well done. So, I don't know, That's it's different. So, as a conclu- <laughs> I think that's. I think we can all agree on that. It is different, absolutely. But um, I wanted to ask you as, as a final question, the atmosphere that you saw SciArc operating in when it first started and the kind of zeitgeist, the scientific zeitgeist that it might have been contributing to and a part of. How would you describe the zeitgeist that it's contributing to today? Well, it's known for two aspects of architecture. It's, no, it's known, we're, we're known as a strong design school, you know, in, in the United States. We're known in the world and we're known as a strong computer-driven school. It's not very high on the practical end of the, the, the scale, but on those two elements, SARC is still out there pretty strong. I mean, you know, who, who are we second to in this country? We're Harvard and MIT. Well, you know, that they have a pretty big advantage, and yet we're, we're right there with them. 
and some people would put us ahead of them, but it's hard to put anybody ahead of the, a couple of schools like that in the East Coast schools because they have a long-time reputation, and, and they can choose any student in the country they want. So, you know, that, that and they give them full scholarships and anything like that. So they start with probably the some of the brightest students in the first place. So if we're right there with them and we don't, at least when I started, I took in everybody, let them flunk if they wanted to. I, we didn't flunk them. They'd drop out, you know, if they didn't like, if the work is too hard. It's not an easy program to, to go to school in because you're working, 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 particularly in these days. But uh, so I always felt that they, you know, if they, if they couldn't hack it and they didn't feel comfortable with it, they shouldn't be in it. But they should at least have a chance to try. Today, we're a little more, they've been more elitist since after I stepped down. Everybody else. They can afford to. They can afford to, but also the, there was an attitude of the, some of the instructors. You know, I was probably too open, but not in my opinion, but in other people's opinion. And uh, they wanted, they didn't want to teach students that weren't the best students. Some people only want to teach the best students. Well, that's the easy way of teaching. The hard part is to teach the students who aren't the best students. The best students will take care of themselves, pretty much, you know, with a little encouragement. But the, the other students need, need a lot more support. But if you're going to have only good students in your class, you're going to do better. Uh, it'll look better, at least, but it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily teaching or having people learn better. It's just a way of observing it as looking better. And, and, and that was another real strong point at Sark early on, uh, was some of the models that were made were really beautiful. And they, they were, I give a lot of credit to both Eric Moss and, and uh, Tom Main for, for that kind of product that they were getting out of students. And, and, we, and, and when we first started, everybody was sort of in a cooperative mood, and they, nobody would touch anybody's model. You could leave them out. You know, in most schools, they get smashed up right away or stolen or God knows what. So we could have them out, and people would, visitors would come through, and they'd be really impressed with what was there. And that was nice. And, uh, of course, in Sark today, I think is. I like the lineal school that we have because I think that's a very good way of moving directly out of the studio into the crit session, onto the wall, walk away, you, you have an exhibit of what's going on through the school. And when you take a walk down, you see everything that's happening, and that, that's very good. And I think that's the way schools should be open like that and, and one in which you, you see what's happening I remember, and I'm sorry to go to regress a little bit, but just one, one more. I remember when, when we started Cal Poly, I would visit some other schools around the country, and some of them were a disaster. I mean, you, you'd look, you couldn't find anything in the school, I mean, as far as work. And you'd look on the walls, and what were they teaching in this place? You know, it's really unbelievable. And even at the millennium, when I was giving a talk in Cyprus, and they later sh took, showed us the work, and there was nothing there. I finally see some good work on the wall, and I said, well, where, what class is this? Oh, that was when the AA came through. That's their work. So, <laughs> so in a very presumptuous way, I, I, <laughs> I, I wrote the the dean afterwards and I said you know if you'd like I could help you get get some people teaching at your school that might be better because all they wanted were PhDs well the PhDs were they're not they're not good design instructors they're usually it's in history or you know they they cared only about that which was fine there's nothing wrong with that but but you don't have a you can't expect a good school to be a good design school with people who aren't designers. You can talk, you can write, you can do everything, but you can't design. And a lot of times the best, the ones who talk the best and write the best are not, are not, are not good designers and vice versa. So it's, uh, you know, there's lots to conclude. You know, architecture requires so many different 
abilities really to be successful and it it it's hard from you know you have to be anywhere from like you doing a lot of things from today you have to be able to sell you have to be able to communicate you have to be able to you know do the product you have to understand all the stuff that goes into a building any building it's very complicated nowadays you know it's very very complicated so it's really a it's a collaboration it has to be a collaboration of, of many many talents and disciplines besides architecture itself you need need good engineers and you need good um, you know mechanical electrical people and you need all this stuff and, to, and now they even you know now you have people who are they specialize in uh, curtain walls they specialize in all kinds of different things and architects are really uh, conceptual design or the beginning design schematic design preliminary design design in general but they have to be able to bring all these people together and be able to understand what they're talking about and be able to put it in and be ready to defend yourself if you get sued later on <laughs> because that that that's another part of it and and even the way contracting is done today, it's it's so much different than when, when I was started out and up until the eighties. And uh, it's it just it's just a different world, and it's it's a complicated world. But you've managed to uh, retain a very clear eyesight throughout all of it, and to get to reflect on over sixty years of a of a very drastically changing practice. So thank you so much for telling us uh, a little bit about that and uh, joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions One-to-One with Ray Cappy. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One-to-One. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure to not miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. You can keep up with podcasting news from Archonnect on Twitter through at ArcSessions or hashtag ArcConnectSessions, or you can email us through connect at Thanks again for listening to One to One.